Joining us now to talk more about the fascinating opposition of Mars occurring this month is Dr. Bruce Betts, research scientist and director of projects for the Planetary Society. Dr. Betts was a double major Bachelor of Science in Physics and Mathematics at Stanford University, where in 1987 he earned an MS in Applied Physics with an emphasis on astronomy. He earned a Ph.D. in planetary science with a minor in geology at Caltech, where he had previously obtained an M.S. in planetary science. He's worked at NASA, he works for the Planetary Society, and he's affiliated with the Planetary Science Institute. While Dr. Betts may not agree with my uh, calling him a rocket scientist at the start of this program, I think if you work at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you know, you're elected. And there's a local angle to this as well. Dr. Betts is from the area. His family still lives here, and I hope they're listening. Uh, Dr. Betts, at the current time, there are no less than seven probes whizzing out toward um, the red planet. That is true. Two currently working spacecraft at Mars. You've got the the U.S. orbiters at Mars, Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Odyssey, that have been there for Mars Global Surveyor since 1997, still working great Mars Odyssey since 2001. And then we've got an international fleet headed to Mars this year with two from the U.S. Mars Exploration rovers that will be our by far the most capable rovers ever on the surface of Mars. Mars Express Orbiter from the European Space Agency that will add a lot of instruments and looks at Mars that we've never done from an orbiter and carries the Beagle 2 lander. Right, so, so, so we've got three... Three orbiters and three landers between NASA and the Europeans. Right, and one more orbiter from the Japanese called Nozomi. It, it had a bit of a problem earlier, I guess, and had to get rerouted. Uh, yes, yes. Nozomi was launched uh, actually in 98, I believe, and but actually turned out to they, they didn't have enough thrust to get them to Mars. They had a problem. And, and not getting enough speed to get there the way they had planned. So they did some <clears throat> creative, quick thinking and were able to get it to come past Earth two more times and use Earth for what's called a gravity assist to, to steal a little, uh, little energy from Earth as they go by and was able to give them enough speed that now they headed off to Mars at the same time as the rest of the spacecraft, basically, in, in uh, early to mid-June and will now get to Mars uh, at same time as everyone else, basically the end of this year. Uh, but they still do actually have some serious technical issues with their spacecraft, so it remains to be seen whether they will be able to, to successfully carry out their science mission or not. Well, nevertheless, uh, on behalf of all the planetary scientists, I think you should take a bow for your ability to fix things on the fly from millions of miles away. <laughs> That's very impressive. It is impressive. It's, it's, it's the planetary engineers out there. <laughs> yes, the, it never ceases to amaze me, the uh, what what is able to be fixed and worked around in the spacecraft business? Because again, it is it's it's so so challenging. You're in such a radically different environment and need things to work so perfectly. Basically, almost all spacecraft have some some glitches, and it's just a matter of whether they're big or small. Now, Mars is kind of a double whammy this year. We're we're sort of anticipating what's going to happen when all of these probes um, get there. But right now, but in in the in the month of August and September. Uh, the Earth is doing something, Earth and Mars are in the, in the dance that they do, orbiting the Sun. Uh, there's a rather remarkable occurrence coming up this month. Can you tell us about, about that? I sure can. And uh, I'll start out with just, go see Mars. Everyone go see Mars. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, would they, how would someone do that? It's amazing. You can go out right now uh, in, in kind of early to mid-August. Mars is rising in the, in the 
somewhat late evening in the 10 o'clock range. And you go out any time after that, look in the, the east in the uh, evening or before the sun rises, uh, you, can, you can look towards the west. And it is the brightest object that you'll see up there in the sky besides the moon. Uh, and uh, so just go out, and even with a naked eye view, it's quite beautiful. If you can get a hold of an amateur uh, telescope, it's possible you can see polar caps. But what's going on, well, the amazing thing is that we've got Mars coming the closest it's come to Earth in nearly 60,000 years. It is the closest it has been, and it will come a little closer in another uh, another couple, 250 years or so. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Mars is, again, it's the very different from all the other planets in this way, that the dance, as, as you called it, that the Earth plays with Mars, it really varies, and it varies even in the closest approach, is hugely different from one time to the next. And it's mostly because Mars has a somewhat elliptical orbit. It's non-circular. It's a little more squished out. Dust storms tend to happen in southern summer, and that has to do with it being closer uh, during that period of the year. So actually, there it really is an appreciable more heat that can stir up the atmosphere and kick up dust. Uh, But in this case, things work out very nicely for us that although you do get Mars coming closer and farther at these closest points, closest point called opposition uh, that happens every 26 months or so, uh, but these closest points vary a lot. So the last time we had a, a really good opposition was in the 88-89 time frame. Uh-huh. But in terms of actually being closer, it's closer than almost 60,000 years. So the, the Planetary Society, where I, where I hang out and work, is uh, working to, to uh, work with organizations all over the world in what we're calling Mars Watch 2003 to try to encourage people to go out, learn about Mars, look up at Mars. And there are a lot of local events that are under the Mars Watch umbrella that you can find on our website at planetary.org slash marswatch2003. Which I highly recommend the listener to go and do, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. And the Planetary Society, I've been a member for, I think, 20 years. Very worthy uh, worthy group. If nothing else, uh, if, if nothing else, you get the Planetary Report every month, which is a heck of a beautiful magazine. It is. It's the, the members-only magazine that comes out every couple months. And again, you can learn more about that as well as how to join the, the organization by going to planetary.org. Or if you, uh, you, can, you can call uh, 1-800-9-WORLD, and that will also uh, get you to us. Um, and we're, we're also doing other things tied to this Mars opposition. Yeah, tell us about that. The actual closest approach is on August 27th, and for, for uh, those of us here on the west coast of the United States, that uh, it's a little, I can't remember exactly, but it's after 2 in the morning on the 27th, so it's really the night of the 26th. Now, if you go out any time, including tonight, right. <laughs> whenever you're listening to this, probably, tonight will will be great, but that's technically the closest, and it's a little after 2 in the morning on the 27th, the close, so you go out, out on the evening on the 26th. August 27th is Mars Day, again, just an attempt to try to really draw the public interest and attention. You're starting to see in the the press more and more coverage of this. We're also doing an event uh, for Ray Bradbury, the author of the Martian Chronicles, Uh uh, and we'll be holding a birthday event for him because his birthday happens to be the 22nd. Doing an event there, and so anyone who's a Bradbury fan can come to our website and actually submit birthday wishes if they do it for the 20th of August that will be delivered to him on a gigantic card. So I didn't mention on the Mars Watch, if you go check our website, you can try to find events in your area. Okay. Uh, that's where we've got a listing of events in your area that range from just outdoor star parties to lectures. I mean, not surprisingly, a lot of uh, planetaria and astronomy clubs throughout the world are doing a lot of things 
uh, tied to this wonderful, wonderful viewing of Mars. Well, before the show's over, I'll try and uh, I'll try and sneak away and get a get a look at that for our listeners to try and uh, see if we can tell them where where something will be going on in the Sacramento region. All right, that sounds great. Yeah. Sacramento region, near and dear to my heart, since I grew up there. <laughs> so you you know UCD pretty well, I guess. Yes, I do. <laughs> we should also mention, I guess you do a radio program down at KUCI, UC Irvine, the Planetary Society. We should put a plug in for our uh, sister uh, campus. Yes, that sounds great. Yes, we do a show called Planetary Radio that airs uh, on, on KUCI every Monday. Uh, but more significantly for most of the world, it also uh, you can be found on our website at planetary.org if you follow the links to Planetary Radio. And it's a, it's a half hour where we do interviews each week with a different key person in uh, planetary and space science, ranging from project scientists of missions to project managers to science fiction authors like uh, Arthur C. Clarke and, and Bradbury. So it's a, a wide variety of people. And then we also have some regular segments to give you a question and answer and things you can look for in the night sky and fun facts and, uh, and trivia contests. So uh, it's a good time. I enjoy it. <laughs> but then I'm on the show. We are conversing today with a planetary scientist, Dr. Bruce Betts. Tell us a bit about the Planetary Society. I guess that uh, it was in the 1970s uh, when Bruce Murray, Lou Friedman, and, and Carl Sagan decided that they needed to get people looking up at the sky a little more. Yeah, it was, it was started right around 19, 1980 uh, by, by those three and with a, with a few goals in mind. I mean, basically our, our mission is to excite and inspire the public about planetary exploration and search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We do that in, in many ways. We're the, by far the largest space interest group in the world uh, with uh, 80,000 or so members all around the world in 130 countries. And we have various things we do, ranging from things like this with Mars Watch to try to get people excited about uh, something they can look at to being involved in projects such as Mars Exploration Rovers, where we have a very active role with that mission and some things that hopefully I'll have a chance to discuss, uh, to our publications like the Planetary Report and our website, and also advocacy. So we are with various world space agencies, all of them really, we, we are trying to, to be in the forefront of pushing for planetary exploration. You know, at some future point, I want you to come and talk about some of the successes that you've had in terms of, like, restoring the mission to Pluto, which the Planetary Society was very, uh, very active in. Yes, I would like to do that. That would be great. But, but there's so much to talk about Mars, I don't, <laughs> I don't right. want to... Uh... All right, then I'll resist the temptation to, to move off into those areas. Very good. Now, you're going to have, uh, every so often when there's a big extravaganza, something's going by um, uh, one of the planets, uh, Planetary Society and others will generally host a Planet Fest, and I guess you have one of those scheduled for January. We do, January 2nd through the 4th here in Pasadena, which is where we're headquartered, Pasadena, California, at the Convention Center, we will be having Planet Fest. And we do this uh, sporadically tied to big planetary events that people can participate in. And in this case, it's the landing of the first Mars Exploration Rover, which is called Spirit, which will land on the evening of the 3rd, West Coast time. And it's a place where we, we typically have Nearly 10,000 people come to these. We have a giant screen so people can actually watch it in a crowd, and it's really a, a pretty amazing experience. And also hear lectures from people not only involved with those mes missions and seeing the people who are actually involved with the spacecraft you're watching, but also a whole, a whole range of planetary exploration of, of exhibits and lectures and talks and things for kids. So it's a, a, it's, a, it's a big, big event and a way for people to come together and try to actively enjoy planetary exploration. 
I will definitely be there, and I would encourage anyone listening, if they can, if they have any travel time available to them in January, to consider making that trip. Yeah, it's a neat opportunity travel-wise, too, for, for those, say, in Northern California, since it, <laughs> the Rose Parade is here on January 1st, as well as the Rose Bowl. So oh, no, it's perfect. It. You know what it's like in the Thule fog up here in January. You, you want to be in <laughs> Pasadena then. <laughs> Yes, and somehow they've they've engineered it so certainly on January 1st, it is always sunny and clear for you know, the Rose Parade. You know, I don't understand how that is done. I, I mean, that, that, is, that is so true and so uncanny. I don't know what to think about it. <laughs> but yes, it is kind of a mystery to me as well. <laughs> well, I, I want to just say, too, I mean, I just want to speak about that, about Planet Fest. Uh, um, in 1999, with the attempted landing of the Polar Lander, I guess right, it was, uh, polar lander. didn't quite pan out unfortunately but it was still a good time i was still able to, to, to people are selling meteorites and just you have all these exhibits and still even 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 when the planetary mission was a bust it was still fun any luck at all that's not going to happen i mean when you, we've got when, when there's basically seven things that are going to they're supposed to happen the odds say that some of them are going to be successful right exactly and we are caught even though we're tying it to that one rover landing, we are covering all of these uh, spacecraft, and we'll have people representing them in data and, and data feeds from all of them. So uh, we're in good shape for, for anything. <laughs> yeah, and of course, in 1989, when uh, the Voyager 2 spacecraft made its last planetary flyby of Neptune, that was a good time and a spectacular success in terms of yeah. the planetary mission. Yes, and we also had a Planet Fest in 97 tied to Pathfinder, which was quite, quite a, a spectacular success. Yes, I'm forgetting. I was there for that one too. That was that was also good. I uh, I've told this story on the show before, and I you know I I think I'll just tell it again. Nineteen because it's such a great story. 1989, uh, I went down to Planet Fest at Pasadena. I'm standing there, recognized his this famous astronomer's face from Discover Magazine, and he's talking to the clerk and says, uh, "We have a reservation for a Clyde Tombaugh." And the clerk is sort of looking like, "Okay," she's looking up the name. I look over, and this little ninety-year-old man is standing there. So I turn to him and say, "Excuse me, sir, are you Clyde Tombaugh?" He looks at me and says, "Yes, I am." And I said, "Well, I'd like to shake your hand because it isn't every day you get to meet someone that discovered a planet." <laughs> and he smiled and sure. shook my hand. It was great. But then, the, but then the best part, I turned over to the clerk when he sort of after, after a minute, I turned and said, you know, that man there, he discovered the planet Pluto. And, <laughs> and the clerk goes, really? And she turns to the other clerk, starts saying, that guy over there, that man, discovered Pluto. All of a sudden, he was a big shot, and they were giving him the red carpet treatment. And that was one of my small contributions to Planet Fest. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe we can employ you in recognizing famous astronomers. That are... <laughs> I'd be glad to take the job. <laughs> we do have a chance. I'd like to mention a couple other things we've got going with the Mars Exploration Rover mission. Please do there. that. And I'm thinking of a couple right. questions I forgot to ask you, too, about specifics. So, so please proceed with that. All right. We do have a, a, a big project, actually, the first sort of education experiment accepted on a NASA planetary mission that's called Red Rover Goes to Mars, and it's part of the Mar official part of the Mars Exploration Rover mission, and it consists of various components, uh, and I just want to mention especially a couple of them here because there are, are things people can do uh, via the web. One is uh, uh, on each of these spacecraft is a DVD provided by the Planetary Society that carries four million names of people who submitted their names over the internet to NASA of they wanted to send their names to Mars. So it's an archived DVD that, that's going to Mars. Uh, those names are already in, but what we do have is some interesting things on it to try to engage the public, both kids and adults. One of those are these little figures that are 
figures of their representations of uh, Lego minifigures, all dressed up for space. Uh-huh. We call them astrobots, and we've created characters with them: Biff Starling and Sandy Moondust. <laughs> and they write their diaries on our website. Find that through planetary.org or at redrovergoestomars.org/astrobots, and they will give you updates in a humorous and entertaining way, hopefully. Uh, that also gives you information about the mission and, the, for example, up till now, I've covered the launch and, and crews and some other things going on with the other spacecraft, but hopefully making you laugh at the same time. Well, family uh, we, should have quite a bit of fun with that, I think. Yeah, that's my hope. We also occasionally are bringing them in on uh, interviewing Biff and Sandy now on Planetary Radio. <laughs> uh, we also, you can drive a simulated ro- Mars rover at, on our website as well, what we're calling Mars Stations, where we have different places around the world set up to, to look like Mars and dioramas and Lego rovers with video cameras on there. You can probably sense where our partner in this is the Lego company. <laughs> and so they've worked with us to really engage uh, the public and, and kids more and more. And then we'll also have students involved at, in operations at JPL during the actual mission. Well, that should be a lot of fun for all, I think. I hope so. Certainly fun for us to produce, and, and we're, we're getting a lot of positive feedback. We're speaking with Dr. Bruce Betts of the Planetary Society. Well, Dr. Betts, let's speculate a little bit. If, if we, I don't want to go out into, on too big of a limb, but in the last, what, year or two, the photos that we've gotten have been so good that people have picked up gullies and formations that appear to show water everywhere on Mars. Yes, uh, Mars is definitely back in the, uh, in the very alive state, <laughs> in, the, in the swings that it goes through in people's perception, and that both in terms of potential for life and also in terms of uh, geology. And the, the gullies you refer to have been found with the Mars Global Surveyor uh, uh, camera, and then also now with the Themis camera on board Mars Odyssey. And these tend to occur on the sides of things like craters. The, the really interesting thing about it is they, they're yet another feature on Mars that appears to form via liquid water, of which we see gigantic channels, enormous channels that were formed by water in the distant past. Right. The thing about these gullies is they seem to have been formed in the recent past. Now, that's recent in a geologic sense, so take it with a grain of salt, that may be 10 million years. But if you compare it to the 4 billion years history of the planet, if you've got something going on like that with liquid water, that's something people really didn't expect. Because, again, liquid water is not stable on the surface. So all sorts of scientists have been working on coming up with how this might be happening. I noticed an absolute determination among scientists not to be overly optimistic and raise the, raise the uh, hopes of the public. They keep looking for other things that might be causing it. Well, that's true. And part of that is maybe an active attempt not to raise the hopes of the public. More of it probably is just the tenacious, shark-infested waters nature of the scientific <laughs> process, which is, which is that you put things out there on a limb and people will saw it off before you've, you're, you're even done putting it out there. Yes. Uh, and the great thing about the science process would, is, is that it works, and so that people put out an idea, and if it doesn't really make sense, the rest of the science community will chew you up. Sure. Uh, but it also causes people to be, not put out a, a bunch of, of wild speculation. Which, which is uh, good. It's been a very interesting process that's very characteristic of new discoveries in planetary science, that you find a discovery like this, and then people uh, try to come up with, with explanations. And it's ranged from exotic things like liquid carbon dioxide to how it, you know, maybe it doesn't require water, or it does if you do it different ways. The latest is that it may be uh, buried snowpacks, essentially, sure. that, that, that uh, buried with a, a dust cover keeping the, the ice stable, and that during 
certain parts sure. of the year, you can actually get little trickles of basal melting, melting right at the, the where the liquid water actually can be stable at the bottom of this ice pack right. and drain down. The exciting part of this, if you go back to astrobiology, is that liquid water is one of the few things that Earth life requires. Even life that lives in frozen environment right. needs a little liquid water once in a while. And so the fact that you can find this on Mars in the recent past, maybe right now, suddenly yeah. you're saying, wow, there may not, have, not only be great potential for past life on Mars, but gosh, it could even be there right now. Uh, and so it's really, as you say, that and the Mars Odyssey uh, discoveries that we always expected there was water ice in the polar regions on Mars and going down to latitudes like 60 degrees, but they found it's not just, it seems to not just be uh, icy dirt, so to speak, but it's dirty ice in a lot of these regions. There's an awful lot of water water ice in this case is what I'm referring to. Two things. I mean, by measuring radiation coming off the surface, it's now been determined there really is water ice just everywhere. Well, at high latitudes. Mid to high latitudes. I mean, certainly down to 60 degrees in both the north and the south. And yeah, and that it's, it's really prevalent. I mean, again, it wasn't, the surprise wasn't that it was there. The surprise was how much of it is there. Well, but then the question, uh, isn't, isn't it been a great uh, enduring mystery of Mars that if, if we can clearly see there were these vast channels so, soon after Mars's formation, billions of years old, that showed lots of water running on the surface, where did it go? No, you're exactly right. That's been one of the fundamental science questions on Mars since we figured out there were these giant channels, <laughs> yeah. is, is where can you store it? And the subsurface has always been theorized, but now it's shown that more so that is at least where a lot of it is hiding. And obviously, water and water ice are also key to any future ponderings of human exploration on Mars, not only for, for, for drinking, but you can take water and break it apart and make it into hydrogen and oxygen, rocket fuel. Yeah. So. Here's a question I have for you with, you know, with a degree in planetary science, PhD from Caltech. Here's a question I haven't seen answered anywhere. If you go a mile down on Mars, you've added all that pressure. Isn't there any problem having liquid water once you're down a ways? You can have it, Barry. That's exactly right. Uh, and that is yet another question people ponder. And again, it depends on your latitude, even at that depth of, of how efficiently you, you can do it. But yeah, it, there are models that suggest there can be liquid water a mile or two miles down. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, a tricky thing to find. And people are coming up with instruments to try to test for things like that, both from orbital radars and also um, electromagnetic sounding uh, from surface instruments. So hopefully we'll, we'll start getting some some better answer to whether that's true. Now, how we ever get down to explore that is a whole other issue. <laughs> but the fact, yeah, you've hit, it, you've hit it exactly on the head, that that is, that is possible, that there you can keep liquid water stable uh, for much longer periods of time if you, can kind of, if you can kind of seal it in there. Yeah, we know there's organisms two miles down on the Earth, which nobody expected. Well, what the heck? Right. Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's it, it really, we are in a new explosion of excitement about Mars. Because of discoveries on Mars with Global Surveyor and Odyssey, because of all the spacecraft that are going to Mars and planned for Mars. We have an exciting next few years with Mars as well. And ironically, because of discoveries here on Earth about life and the nature of life. So Mars is, Mars is a happening place. Yeah. The way things are planned, we'll have missions every uh, opportunity, which is about every 26 months, there will be spacecraft headed to Mars, at least from the U.S. space program for the next few years. I certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah.
Just you know, on on the web, not not a week ago, there was an article about uh, fresh off the presses. Someone's looking at, I guess, the Hellas Basin, a large sort of uh, desert area on Mars, and noticed that there were white spots that looked like these um, these ice towers seen in Antarctica. That somebody was saying could be that there's enough water vapor or water coming to the surface to actually form towers of ice. What's the story on that? There are all sorts of ponderings of ice and, and how it's stable and not stable on Mars these days. And, and the discoveries are almost hard, getting hard to keep up with, especially from Odyssey and Global Surveyor. They're still, there's been such, they get very little coverage uh, in the press, but they are such potent spacecraft in terms of what they're giving us about Mars. Working as we speak. Exactly. Literally as we speak. Yeah. And then these other spacecraft that, that hopefully will gather the world's attention are, are headed off there to give us whole different looks. They're all doing very different things and will really add to our, our understanding. I'll, I'll give one last plug for the Planetary Society website. Please we have do. A whole exploring Mars section on our website at planetary.org slash Mars where you can learn about all the spacecraft that are at Mars and going to Mars as well as Mars itself. Have fun. Well, Dr. Bruce Betts has been very interesting talking about uh, the mysterious red planet with you here today. It's been fun talking to you, too. And I hope you will come again because, I mean, Mars is just one planet. We got a whole, we got a whole solar system orbiting our local, uh, local star, and out uh, in deep space, scientists have made a lot of discoveries about planets um, everywhere. Exactly. There's all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah, please come back and let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some of that. I'd love to. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Dr. Bruce Betts can be heard on the Planetary Society's weekly radio program, which is every Monday, 5.30 p.m. on KUCI in Irvine, California. For more information on this radio program or the Planetary Society, go to www.planetary.org. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM.